Well, I don't know if you are aware of this, but this is Super Super Bowl weekend, Super Sunday today, of course. And in many ways, pastors, you know, we think every Sunday is a Super Sunday. Uh, But if you're a sports fan, uh, this is one that I guess over 100 million people are going to be watching this game, not only here, but around the world. Uh, It might even go a little bit higher than that. And so people really tune in to find out what happens in a few hours. And with that, I thought, uh, since this is uh, Super Bowl Sunday, uh, that I might give a sports illustration to begin. Uh, I remember back uh, a number of years ago, in fact, actually before that, I could just look back to this, this past year, the Los Angeles Dodgers finally won another, what? World, World Series. And the first one, or the last one they had ever won was in 1988. And for some of you who are just diehard Angel fans, I just want to let you know, I'm, I'm an Angel fan and a Dodger fan at the same time. It's only going to be a, um, a battle uh, or, or a real struggle for me is when they meet in the World Series, which would be, which would be a great problem to have. But anyway, in 1988, uh, as a lifelong Dodger fan, it was interesting. They, they got to the World Series, which was an upset in and of itself because uh, they were not favored to make it. They went against the New York Mets in the playoffs, and they were to actually to be killed in just a few games. It went seven. One particular per, uh, pitcher for the, the Dodgers, or Horshire, actually won three games during that series and saved the other one. And uh, with that, he wasn't able to start the World Series, so they thought they're going to probably lose in four games. Plus, what was just marking their desire uh, to somehow pull out a victory in the World Series, their best player, who won the MVP in the National League that year, Kirk Gibson, was injured. Uh, He had uh, pulled a hamstring in his left leg, and he had messed up his right leg and his knee, and it was doubtful that he was going to be able to play the first game. And what we found out later, he didn't play in any game except for one particular at-bat in the first game. And leading up to that game, what was happening, or during the game, Ben Scully, the famed announcer for the LA Dodgers, was, was looking in the dugout and say, was saying, Kirk Gibson, Kirk Gibson, he can't be found. He's nowhere to be seen. And so no one really thought in this one-run ball game that he would get a chance to come up and maybe do something heroic. And so it came into the last inning, the ninth inning, and the Oakland Athletics had a very famed, very successful, ended up being a Hall of Fame relief pitcher, Dennis Eckersley, who won the Cy Young a number of times. And he came in, he got the first two Dodgers out, and then he walked one particular batter. And so with two outs, there was a man on first, and all of a sudden, Kirk Gibson comes to the plate, and he drags himself up, and uh, it we won't make, go through, I won't make this too long, but basically every time he swings, they think he's going to fall over and he's, it's just painful to watch him try to hit the ball. He fouls off a few, uh, off a few pitches and it's now th- three balls and two strikes. And all of a sudden, uh, Dennis actually throws this pitch toward the outside part of the plate and Kirk Gibson, who was known as much for his playing football as he was baseball, he reached over the, the plate, extended his arms and Ben Scully goes, and there's a high ball, high fly ball in the right field. She's gone, all right? And then in one of his uh, f- famous ways of announcing a game, he just didn't say a word for about five minutes because the game was in Dodger Stadium. The crowd went wild. But as uh, kind of a heroic that is, and they ended up winning the, the World Series, and, and as I look back at that, they had to be one of the worst teams ever to win the World Series, is that... There was another announcer on a radio station, and his name uh, is Jack Buck, and this is what he said when this, this 
unexpected, heroic at bat by a wounded warrior on, on the field, a hit, he, he, said, he said this, I can't believe what I just saw. I can't believe what I just saw. And, and if you ever read the scriptures carefully at all or just notice what it is saying, and if you were honest, you'd have to kind of phrase that this way as you saw what was written in the scriptures. You would say, if I was really honest, I can't believe what I just saw in this book. And maybe you can relate to another experience, which we've all had. Maybe someone has been talking all of a sudden, and you've been listening, and all of a sudden they say something that surprises you. Now, you heard what they said, but what you do to somewhat cover, you say, now, could you repeat that? I'm not sure I heard what you just said. And then they repeat it, and it was what you said, and you just, you can't believe your ears, right? And you might even comment on that. I guess I did hear you the first time, but I didn't believe what you said. In fact, you might even say to them, I can't believe you said that. Well, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture this morning. Really, you could say, I don't really believe what I just saw here. Or I don't really believe what I just heard if it was spoken to you. Because the statements in here are so amazing about what God does to people that it just overwhelms you. Now, if you, you've got your outline this morning, if you brought it with you or you picked it up as you came in, uh, you recognize that uh, I don't have the typical message today, even on a Sunday, that I need to speak quickly. And I normally don't speak quickly. But, uh, but on this particular Sunday, normally they talk to you about you know, preaching. They say, well, you know, when you preach, you ought to have a central theme. And there will be a simple, central theme. And I've tried to introduce that. And we're going to talk about something that is true. Really, this is true. This is true. And so when you leave this morning, I hope you recognize that what we're talking about is true, and it changes everything. But to look at the text, I'm not going to share with you three points or four points. I'm going to share with you eight points. And I know eight points is too many things to remember. I mean, actually, I remember them all because I put them together. But, but if you can't remember all eight, you might want to circle the ones that, that strike you the most because what, what Peter is saying to those who have been dispersed throughout Asia Minor, he's going to tell them some things that, that are going to amaze them. And I'll, I'll throw this one other in, introductory comment. Not, not only is he going to tell them some things that are going to amaze them, he, he's going to tell them some things that he's already told them. Now, have you ever had that experience? That, that people will repeat some things to you, even though they know you heard them? And, and why do they repeat the things that, you've, that they know they've heard because they know you're not really, they, they know you're not really sure you believe what they just what? What they just said. And so by way of emphasis and conviction, communicating to them, no, this is, this is really true. They'll repeat it. And we're gonna see that this morning as we look at truly, really, uh, this is true. The, the true truth, this is not fake news, uh, that God says to us through Peter about what he does in people's lives who come in relationship to him. Now, by way of simple review from last week, and I will go a little bit faster in a few moments, hopefully not speaking fast, but through the points, is that we talked about a section which was a little foreign to our ears in the way 
it's translating the English language, though really it's a good translation of uh, the, the Greek language into the English language. We, we talked about people who believe and then also, then also people who, what? Disbelieve. And some of you say not believe, but not believe in our language is two words, right? Not believe. But, but we use in the New American Standard believe and disbelieve. And you're thinking, why didn't you just say did not believe or, or not believe? In the original language, it is a one word. The word belief is bestuo. And then what you do to make it a negative connotation is to have what they call an alpha privative or alpha prefix. Now, most of us can relate to what I'm going to share with you right now, is that you talk about someone who believes in God, we don't, although we don't use this word very often, we'll say that person is a theist. The word theo or theos is the word God in, in the Greek language. When you say a person is not a believer, you say he is an ath- what? atheist, right? Believe not, believe no. And this is what he is talking to in terms of the people he's writing to. You know, some of you believe and some of you disbelieve. You've heard it, and maybe you're even convinced it's accurate or true, but you're not giving your life to the truth. You're not surrendering your life to that which you know actually happened and what is true about this man named Jesus who claimed to be God. And so right after he talks about there are people who believe and those who people who disbelieve, those people who are theists and those people who are atheists, he then goes into a whole other section. But he doesn't use the word therefore. It has been already in the letter he's written. Whenever you see the word therefore, you ask yourself the question, what's the therefore? Therefore. He uses a different word which we often use in our language, in, in spoken language. And sometimes when people uh, are giving us good news, almost news too good to be true, you know, we're hearing it, you know, I mean, it's, it's sounding so awesome. And, and then we're, we're starting to think, I think there's, there's coming a, a, a but. Have you ever heard that? You know, it's going on and on and on and on. I, I think I hear a but coming. And, and this is what he does here. And, and the but transition is that he is he's talking about people who are now wondering, well, am I in the belief section or the disbelief section? And, and what is true about me if I really believe? And so he goes, and, but this is, this is what is true about you. You're not headed toward destruction. Or as he said in 1 Peter uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 8, this doom that has been appointing to you because you have stumbled over that foundational rock, that living stone that is Jesus. But this is what is true about you. This is true truth. This is truly, this is really accurate information I'm going to give you. And so this is what he says about us who really know the Lord Jesus as our living hope. Uh, This is what is true about us. And some of it he's already said, but the reason he is saying it again is because it's almost too good to be what? True. True. You get, have I emphasized the point enough? We're, we're talking about something that's true. And, and sometimes, even if we believe intellectually is true, we don't reflect on it because we're saying, well, I know it's true, but it, it can't really work in my life. But Peter repeats himself and adds a few other details as well. So here we go. Eight quick points, well, eight fairly quick points that he emphasizes what is true about those who have heard the truth, believed the truth, and then surrendered themselves to the one who is the truth. But, verse 9, you are a chosen race. 
And so we're just going to be looking at simple phrases here that describe what is true truth about us. You are a chosen race. Now, for them, uh, many of them were non-Jewish people, and so they had known a little bit about how God brought his son into this world, and he had, he had picked a chosen race, and, and they were wondering, well, how, how can I measure up to God's plan? Because uh, ethnically, I'm not Jewish. I'm not, I'm not part of that chosen plan. And, and so he wants them to understand that, that, that God chooses those who really believe this is true truth. And even that was true in the beginning, is that God doesn't choose us because we're more special than somebody else. Let me just read that from you, Deuteronomy chapter 7, 6 through 9. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the nations who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God, he is God, your faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. But what I want to emphasize out of that section in Deuteronomy that I just read to you is that he goes back and said, well, let's look at the beginning, this story that either you have known personally or have heard about it from another source, is that God does choose people. But how does he choose them? Because they deserve it? No, even Israel, you, you, you were not chosen because you were, a, you were larger in number, more powerful. You weren't chosen because uh, somehow you were better than anybody else. Uh, I chose you because I want to place my love upon you. And, and so as we think about what is this all about, that, that God brings us into relationship with him from, from the perspective from heaven is that the, the reason that we are part of his family is because he wanted us to be part of that family. And, and, and when we look at our, our lives so often when we feel we're undeserving or, or why, why would God choose me and why wouldn't he kick me off the team at, you know, after I behave the way I behave, you didn't recognize that you didn't get on the team because of the way you behave. You didn't get on the team because you were so much a better player than somebody else. You didn't win the World Series because you had a better team than the Oakland Athletics in 1988, just in case I want to tie that illustration in. <laughs> the, reason, the reason you're on God's team is because God chose you. He, he loved you so much. And, and the reason he chose you is because he loved you. And, and so as we think about it, this is a truth that's too good to be true. God wants you. God wants me. And, and the way we know that is when we hear the truth, we respond to the truth, and we put our faith in the one who is the truth. But, but then he goes on to this people who thought, well, we can't be this race. We're not, we're not Jewish. He goes on and says, oh, by the way, not only are you a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood. Now, if you were here last week, what did you hear about this truth? Did you hear it before? Yeah. He said you are a priesthood, right? And now he says, I mean, just a couple of verses later, oh, oh, by the way, I'm repeating myself. And he already told them they were chosen in the very first part of the letter. He says, okay, I, I'm reminding you again that you are priesthood. But, but here what he does, he says, okay, I'm going to add an adjective to it. He says, you are a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood. Now, what does that mean? Not, not only do you have a priesthood as a person who has access to God, can go immediately into his presence, which was not true as God led the 
the progressive truth about our relationship with him. In the Old Testament, you had priests who could go into the place of, of worship, but you only had the high priest who could go into the Holy of Holies. But, say, but you are a priesthood then come into my presence because you know the one who is the high priest. But what he has here is you are a royal priesthood. And that really speaks of that, that God has, has given us something not only to believe in, but also to do. We are, we are to reign with Christ. We are to represent Christ. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, it says this, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. And that, I don't have time to explain that. But, but then he says this, But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him. So we, we have access to God. We have a relationship with God because God wants us to, to, to do his bidding. He wants us to, to rule and to reign in this land. He, he wants us to influence other people's lives. He's given us responsibilities. And so as we, as we think about that, this, this, is, this is a good thing. That, you know, even as we anticipate going into eternity, you know, we're not going to be riding on some kind of cloud playing violins and have nothing to do for eternity. God has something for us to do. We, we are to represent him. And that was true in the beginning in Genesis, and now it's true in Revelation, that, that as we get into his family, we get into his family by the goodness and grace of God. We are a chosen race. And, and, and by the way, I mean, I won't, I won't go down this rabbit trail, but, you know, the whole racial havoc we're having in this nation, and, and, and there are those who are trying to figure, well, where did that come from? Well, let me tell you, it didn't come from the Scripture. That, that, that God created people in his image. And from his perspective, there is only one race, the human race. And if you want to look at maybe some origin, you can look at the Darwinian doctrine. And you can look at those who feel, feel that some races are superior to others. That's not from God, and that's not in this book. And God's plan from the very beginning was to choose out a people whose heart would turn to him. And as we think about that, from the very beginning, he wants us to, to rule with him. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. And then, then he goes on and says, you are a holy nation. And, and again, I think he's speaking to us as we think about our relationship with God. If somehow we think it's it, it just, it, in fact, sometimes people will talk about their faith. And he said, well, or they'll maybe be introduced to talk about their faith. And saying, well, I don't r really talk about my faith because it's, it's a personal matter. Have you ever heard people say that? You know, this, is, this is a personal matter. Well, your faith ought to be personal, but it ought, ought to also be public. And it's also need to recognize that God is calling us as his people, not into an individual relationship with him, but a corporate relationship with him. We are the body of Christ. We are to, to do life together, and we do life better what? Together, we are a holy nation. He could say you're a holy, you're a holy person, but he said you're a holy nation. And what does it mean to be holy? Holy means, you know, not that you're, you know, better than somebody else and you're, a, you remember the, some phrase was you're a goody two-shoes, you know, you think you're just gooder than somebody else. That's not very good grammar, but you get the point, right? I'm gooder than you are. You know, that's not the point. The point is, holy is the idea of you're sanctified, which is another religious word, but it means you're a set-apart people. You're set apart to live a certain way. And maybe as parents, you've had this discussion with your kids uh, where they would say, well, why can't I do that? Everybody else is what? Doing it. 
Well, you say, maybe everybody else is doing it, but in our family, we don't do that. You know, we, we are a, a holy family. You know, we, you don't say that. You don't say, I'm a sanctified family, but this is what our family prioritizes. This is the values of our family, and if other people have other values, that's their decision. That's their lifestyle, but we have certain things that we believe are most important, and there's certain things we're going to do, and there's some, certain things we're going to what? not do. And that's what he's saying here. You're in a nation in which you want to obey the laws of those in authority in that nation. You know, if you're an American uh, and living in America, you have to abide by our laws. If you, ever, if you traveled in other nations, some of those nations, you drive on the wrong side of the road. Anybody had that experience? You know, you, got to, you don't drive on the right side, you got to drive on the left side. And I do pretty good until I make a U-turn, then my whole brain turns around. I can't remember which side I'm supposed to be on, Okay. But whatever nation, you got to go by those laws. But we don't do that in America. And they go, I don't care. But in this country, you do. You this way. All right? And, and that's what he's saying. You're, you're a holy nation. You're, you're set apart to live a certain way. I, I, I like what 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you have from God? You're not your own. You are to glorify God in your body. And so really, that God says, look, you're to live for me. I actually read the, the verse from point number four. But the idea is because God has, has made us different and he lives within us, we live for him, live according to his laws, which relates to the next one. You're God's own possession. Um, you know, I, I don't preach on this very often, but, you know, the whole pro-life, pro-choice movement, and, and, and really, the, the logic, and it's a heartbreak for all those who go through that experience. And, and so we as God's people are not to be hateful and hurtful and judgmental, uh, but we do want to value life. But in, in the pro-choice argument, the whole sense of it seems to be, well, it's, it's my body, and I can do with it whatever I what I want. Now, that sounds pretty convincing, isn't it? It sounds very responsible and logical. But you see, the worldview that Peter is sharing with them is, look, at when, when you surrender your life to Jesus, what you have in this life is now given to him. Your, your body is not your own. You're God's own possession. And, you know, when, when someone borrows something of yours and they, they don't treat it very well, you get offended, don't you? And why? Because that wasn't theirs, that was what? That was yours. And God is saying about us, you're God's own possession, is that, look at you, you don't just go out and do whatever you want, you want to do what God wants because you belong to him. That's the, that's the idea there. In Ephesians 1, it says this, you have been sealed in him with the Holy Spirit who was given as a pledge of our inheritance. And then it says this, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Which is the idea that when we become part of his family, whatever we do reflects on him because we're, we're part of who he is. He owns us. So as I'm rapid firing going through these points, really what, he, what he's writing to them is something that's too good to be true. It's, it's, it's amazing. You mean God loves me so much that he considers me a, a chosen part of his family? It, it's kind of almost like the adoption idea. 
Is that God, as a parent who brings a child into the home because of adoption, says, well, I, you know, all my other kids were accidents, but, you know, I wanted you, you know? That's what he's saying here. And then he goes, are you saying to me that, that I have something to do and I have full access into your presence? Yes, you're, you're a priesthood, and I have something for you to do. You're a royal priesthood. And you consider me as someone who's to live in, in relationship with others. You're a nation, and I'm a holy nation. I'm, I'm, I'm set apart to live according to your laws, the laws of the land I'm living in, which is the heavenly land, that I'm, I'm your own possession, that I, I should not look at my things as my things, but your things, and they're just on loan from God, you know, and, and it's his I think I shared with you one time that um, my brother-in-law one time, I was, I was going backpacking with him and, and a group of other people, and I noticed something out of his mouth, and I said, uh, man, you, you got a toothbrush just like mine. He says, yeah, it is yours, you know, and it was in his mouth. I didn't really think that was a great thing for him to do, but anyway, so, you know, it was my, it was my toothbrush. It wasn't his, and, you know, this is God's body, not my body. And then it goes on, and he says, uh, and this goes, he goes, uh, after he says, you're God's own position, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you. And, and that's the whole idea. We are part of God's family so that we would, we would sh- share the good news about him to others. But, th- but then he goes on, and he says, uh, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Uh, last uh, year, our children... Um, before everything got closed down, went to a, a winter camp, and they had this passage, and their whole theme of the camp was shine, 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 shine. Well, why are we able to shine for Jesus? Because what has happened in our life, uh, we used to be in darkness, and now the Bible says we're now in his light. And, and so we, have, we reflect his light that he has put into our life uh, so that his light could be shown to other people. You know, in, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 and 14, it, it, it says this, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You know, and that's just an amazing thing to think about is that, that God wants us to recognize that we, we live in a world that there's a lot of darkness going on. And I don't need to list all the things that have happened over this past year or years. Uh, there, I remember even in high school, there was, you know, we would often write on the great themes of uh, mankind. And one of them was man's inhumanity to who? To man. I mean, and that, that's man's self-description of saying, look, we do a lot of evil things in this world. And why is it? Well, the Bible describes us as people B.C., before Christ, as have, having darkness in our heart. But once we come into the light of Christ, he, he, he transfers us. He changes us from a, a domain, a, a living in darkness, to living in the light. And, and when you think about, well, how does that really work out? Well, if, if I would just share from my own experiences that the, the closer I get to Jesus and walking with him and knowing him, the more I'm aware of things that are evil, not just out there, but in here, right? The things I say, the things I, I might do or not do, and I realize that's, that's not from Jesus. That's not what God wants me to be all about. 
And, and so the more we become sensitive to things that are in, in, in the darkness, it, re, it shows us that really we've been brought into the light because that light shines in our life what's right and wrong. We're going to be taking communion in a few moments if I ever get finished with the sermon. And um, in Psalm 139, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there be any evil way in my life and then lead me in the everlasting way. And the reason we, we want invite Jesus to search our heart is because we don't want to walk in darkness. We want to walk in light. God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. And we recognize that. So quickly, three more. This one I phrase a little strangely, but then he goes on, verse 10, after he says, you've been transferred out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And I put this in your outline this way. You once were a not, now you are an are. You ever thought about that? <laughs> you once were a not, and now you are an are. And then when you look at the text, you go, that's even more strange when you read the text. You once were not a people, and now you are a people. Probably none of you thought that this past week. I'm not a people. Well, what are you? You're some kind of... If you notice on, on the internet now, for, I don't know, probably, um, probably Tony could tell us why they do that, but you know, they'll have a little box there and say, you are not a what? Robot. You, you've had that, right? I'm thinking, yeah, I'm not a robot. Uh, and now you could add another box. You're not a people. <laughs> What was he saying here? You, you are so far from God. You had, you, had, you had no ability to be called, in a sense, someone who was going to be connected with him because he brought you into this world. You are not a people. You are not a people of God. But, but now you are. You are a people of God. You didn't used to have mercy, but now you have mercy. And there's a great passage in Romans 9 that we won't get to that really kind of deals with God's program with Israel and bringing in all the non-Israelites, all the non-people that, that weren't part of that chosen race. Uh, but that was always God's plan. You read the book of Jonah. That was God's plan as he sent a Jewish prophet to a Gentile world to, to rescue them out of their sin. But the point here is, and we, we, don't, we don't resonate this very much to think, I once was a not, but now I'm an R. I'm a people of God. I, I, I once was going to receive the due justice for my sin. But in God's mercy, he's saving me from the judgment I should receive. Grace is getting what you don't deserve and mercy is not getting what you do deserve. We once were a people with no expectation of mercy from God, now we can, we can just embrace that God is merciful to us. These uh, <laughs> next verses you could, you could preach a, a series on, but I'll just hit them briefly. Be beloved, I, I, I urge you, or after he says all this, I, I urge you. Interesting word in here. I, I know you like all this... Uh, I want to call it trivia, but there's nothing in the Bible that's trivia. This is agape toy. You've heard the word agape. You're called the agape toy of God. The, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts. And then look at this phrase, which wage war against the soul. 
Al's typed this up on the outline, and sometimes she critiques my points. You go, what in the world? You are in a war against your soul. Don't you want to say that in a different way? And I said very spiritually, well, that's what the Bible says. I mean, when you want me to improve on the Bible? Okay. You know, there's a, there's a war going on, and there's a war for our soul. And now he's talking to those who are part of God's family. Now, now God has, has, has the final verdict on our soul, but as we live it out, we're, we're battling ourselves spiritually. And, and in your life groups this week, and if you're, for whatever reason, you're not in a life group, get in one, but if you're not in one, you can still do the homework. Um, people delight me for me from when I say that to people. I said, well, do the homework this week. Well, I, 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 but I can't make a life group. Well, you can still do the homework, all right? Well, this way, you know, part of the verses we're talking about, well, what is this war against your soul? Is that there's a battle going on to draw us back in living out our sin. And, and we need to recognize that, you know, in a war, are there, is it just usually one battle or many battles? Many battles. So don't be surprised that this this struggle against sin, struggle against things that that are overwhelming you, struggling with the things that bring you down, keep on keeping on uh, through this life because we're in a war. You you win one battle, then another battle front comes up. Then you win that battle, then another battle comes up front. It's the whole process by which God brings us into maturity. And uh, he uses colorful language here, but he says, we need need to recognize that we're we're in this struggle against sin and we're waging war. Again, that's what you want to capture our soul, which is who we are and don't give in. And then finally, uh, kind of a positive exhortation. He he uses, this is this word to us, uh, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. You know, the, and that was almost a straightforward word saying is they were in a Gentile land. As people are watching who you are, uh, make sure what they see is what they should see in terms of your behavior. So the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, there's a lot of different things that you could say about this passage, and there, trust me, there are people who've written a lot about this passage. But you know, to, to simplify as much as possible, what is it that that people in that day might slander followers of Jesus about? Well, we do know this. They said, "Well, you are a, you are a disbeliever." Well, what do you mean? What, I believe in Jesus. No, no, you're a disbeliever because you don't believe in in Caesar is Lord. You don't believe in the gods of the Roman Empire. And so they would slander them about being atheists because they didn't believe in their gods. Now, was that a, were they speaking truth about the Christians? Yes, because they didn't believe in Caesar as Lord. They didn't believe in the gods of Rome. So they were slandering them, but they were slandering with using true words about who they were. Uh, also, in what we're going to experience in just a few moments, and if you're, living, if you're watching online, you put pause or whatever it might be, or, or uh, grab some, some bread and some uh, juice or whatever it might be to, to remember a communion. But when they took communion, you know, what they thought they were, you know what they would slander about? Because they heard about taking of the blood of Jesus and eating the body, body of Jesus. You know what they say about them? You're cannibals. You're drinking people's blood and eating people's flesh. 
And so they took the things that, that we would say, this is, and what they were hearing in their own heart and mind, this is too good to be true. You believe in what you're talking about is related to God and everything like that. And so they, they hadn't come to faith about what the true meaning of this was. And, and so they were slandering them. But once, but as they looked at their lives, they said, well, they have some strange beliefs. They have a number of things they think is true truth. And I think they're crazy, but as they began to watch their life, they could not deny that they had something that they didn't have. They had the peace of God in the midst of persecution. They had, they had a confidence that, that God was listening to their prayers and, and God was answering their prayers. They had strength when everyone else were, was falling apart in their own weaknesses. And then when they came to faith, the, the, the ones they had slandered, they now praised because they had been brought to the true relationship of God with the true God who, who manifests himself as Jesus. Jesus is the truth. So as we think about what God has called us to be, he's called us to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession, we are darkness, we are not in the darkness, but in the light. We are, we are not a not, we're now an R. We are the people of God. We have a war that we're going through against the soul, and we have a testimony. Of course, the testimony can either be good or bad. Because people can slander us not because of what we believe, but they can slander us because we don't live out what we say we believe. Isn't that true? We, we say we love people, but if we don't love them, they could say, well, you say that, but you don't, you don't live it. That we, we, we can say that, that, that God gives us peace, but when our lives fall apart, and it's, it's, it's not a matter we don't struggle with the, the trials of this world, but when we, when we don't go to God in the midst of the, our trials, they would say, well, you don't really believe that God can give you peace. And, and so as we live out our faith, God, God wants us to, to, by how we live, if we say that we believe in a God that hates sin and then we lie and, and we don't, we're not honest in our dealings with people. They'd say, well, you, you, you say you believe it, but you don't live it out. So our testimony can be either good or bad, but when our testimony is good, even when they, they say all kinds of things that against us or about us, when they realize what we believe is real, it will change everything. So what's the point this morning? The point is simply this. Are, are we living out the truth? If we personalize it, are you living out the truth? If we corporately bring it together, are we living out the truth? Where people can say, hey, they really believe they're chosen. They really believe they have a, a personal relationship with God because they're a, they're a priesthood that have things to do, a royal. They are a people that, that believe they're, they're not their own. They've, they're God's possession. They're, they're a people that recognize that God has called them to, to be separate from all the things that grab the world. And we're going to see a lot of those commercials on the, I don't know how many commercials they're going to have at the football game, but that they're all wanting to, to grab our values and our resources and everything else we said today. So look at these things this week and just wrestle with what are the ones that God is saying to you that's true truth that should make a difference. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we recognize even in just a few short verses, there's so much truth. And Father, we would pray that we might not only hear the truth, 
but believe the truth and live it out. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.